visitors, guests, longtime attenders, members. I don't care who you are. I'm just glad that you're here. And our goal here as a church is simple, to know Jesus and to make him known in this local community and beyond. So I welcome you here. I hope that you feel a part of this community, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. I'm so glad that you're here. So last week, we began our series called One Degree, Course Corrections from the New Testament, where we're looking at some of those smaller books in the New Testament um, as they give us this wise advice and counsel for making course corrections in our lives. Like I said, we often miss these little small nuggets of Scripture in the midst of all these other bigger pieces of Scripture. So we definitely want to pay attention to what God has included in His Word for our benefit. Uh, so, you, so you know that where we're headed. Um, for next week and the week after, Tim Butler, one of our elders who's not here, I think he's preparing for the volunteer lunch. Uh, he'll be preaching from Second John and Third John, which will be pretty cool because... You know, I'm not a betting man, but I bet that very few of us have actually looked at those books in depth. And I'll probably include myself among those people, uh, so you don't want to miss that. So last week I talked about the book of Jude, and Jude is kind of a tougher book to preach about because, you know, Jude has some pretty harsh things to say to to some pretty, um, pretty rough people. But today we're taking a bit of a course correction ourselves. And we're going to be looking at the book of Philemon. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to the book of Philemon. It's right before you get to Hebrews. Uh, I was looking in my Bible the other day, and I think uh, the uh, beginning of Hebrews is on like page 234, uh, and Philemon's on like 233, and the book before that is on page 232. So it's very, very easy to miss it, but I think it's a very good book, and I'm so glad to look at it. So just to give you guys a little bit of background, the book of Philemon was written by the Apostle Paul, most likely in 60 AD from a Roman jail cell. And the book itself is very, very, very short. It's only about 425 words summed up in 25 verses. And this book is much different than any other letter of Paul that you might find in the New Testament. Because when you look at those letters of Paul, you see he's writing to big churches in, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Rome. But Philemon is quite a bit different because Paul's writing to one person specifically about one particular issue. And you probably wouldn't know it if you studied it, but Philemon is probably one of the most socially controversial books in the entire Bible. And in some circles, it's better known by what it doesn't say by, uh, than for what it actually does say. So I'll chat about that a bit later. But at its core, the book of Philemon is all about forgiveness. It's all about living the gospel when the culture says that the gospel is contrary to the human way of living your life. It's about forgiveness and reconciling yourself to other people. And I've had to ask for forgiveness a lot in my life. As a kid, I broke approximately 10 windows through a variety of means, most likely golf balls. Now, those of you who have played golf with me have known that I have improved marginally. And I've also had to ask for forgiveness for nicking the side of my grandfather's beautiful car. And I've had to uh, ask for forgiveness for accidentally uh, making a move in basketball that led one of my friends to breaking his legs. Uh, So, have you guys heard of that movie called Wreck-It Ralph? My parents call me Break-It Ben sometimes. But please don't call me that. It, It hurts my feelings. I'm just kidding. But as we'll see in Paul's letter to Philemon, forgiveness can be countercultural. It can be unnatural. But in the kingdom of God, forgiveness reigns supreme. 
So as we take a look at this book, be thinking of those key themes of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and what it looks like to live out the gospel in our lives. So before we look at this book in depth, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to the words that you have for us today, Lord. Use your word to transform our lives from the inside out, Lord. Help us to be your hands and feet in this local community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first couple verses of Philemon say this. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a, a boilerplate New Testament epistolary greeting. It's a greeting you put at the beginning of a, of a letter. And Paul says that the letter is from him, obviously. But most likely Timothy is the one who's actually physically writing out the letter because Paul was probably getting old and, and writing became very taxing from him. And he says he's writing primarily to Philemon, but he intends that a couple other folks read the letter as well. And he also wishes grace and mercy from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ upon them too. Now we know who Paul is, the great apostle Paul who gave this, who was this Jew among Jews, who persecuted Christians, but was saved by Jesus Christ himself on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. And Paul's been spreading the gospel to every, uh, every corner of the Roman Empire with every single ounce of his being. And he's been thrown in jail because back in the Roman Empire you couldn't just do that. And we know who Timothy is. He's one of Paul's spiritual sons whom Paul has been mentoring and grooming to take his place as a pastor of pastors of pastors. And Paul wrote two letters to Timothy that we find in Scripture, First and Second Timothy. But Philemon is someone that we know very little about. And what scholars have concluded is that Philemon is most likely one of the elders in the Colossian church, who probably co-founded the church with a guy named Epaphras, whom Paul mentions in the last couple verses of the book. And what it says here is that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's home, which most likely means that Philemon himself was a pretty wealthy guy. The church scraped by in those first couple hundred years through the generosity of people like Philemon who were deeply financially invested in the church. So we can assume that Philemon is one of the wealthy, the wealthy church planning elders of Colossae who let his home become a sanctuary to all the believers in Colossae. And Athia and Archippus, these two people that Paul mentioned, mentions, were most likely Philemon's wife and his son. Now Paul doesn't call them that. He calls Athia our dear sister in the Lord, and he calls Archippus our fellow soldier. Now, that may not mean too much right now, but keep that in the back of your mind as we proceed through the text. And also notice how Paul says, into the church that meets in your home. That's major because while this book appears to be a personal letter from Paul to Philemon, the issues contained in this small book of 25 verses have massive course-altering implications for the church at Colossae. As Paul says elsewhere, if one part of the body hurts, it all hurts. And that's what Paul implicitly tells Philemon right here. He goes on to say in verses 4 through 7, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. 
I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So Paul, he kind of lays on the charm here. He says, I'm so thankful for what you've done for the church. I'm thankful for your partnership, and I'm thankful for all the encouragement that you've given me, brother. So with this, we can imply that Philemon is a very holy man who takes his responsibility as an elder very, very seriously. He wants to shepherd the flock in Colossae, and Paul is deeply, deeply encouraged by that. Now, I don't know about you, but if the Apostle Paul told me that, I'd be super encouraged, and I'd probably retire from ministry because I probably couldn't do any better than that. But what Paul says next is kind of humorous. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So what Paul does here is he butters up Philemon pretty hardcore. You know, he lays it on thick. He's extolling Philemon for his work as an elder, his work as a shepherd, his love for God's people. And he basically says, I'm going to ask you a favor. And because I am the Apostle Paul, I could order you in good faith to do this. But Paul doesn't. Instead, he goes and asks Philemon in a spirit of love. He says, you know, I'm your boss, and I really could act like a boss, but you're my brother, and I'm going to ask you brother to brother. And this is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called holy flattery. This is a book of holy flattery. So Paul's being just a little bit manipulative here. And I don't doubt his sincerity about how he feels about Philemon. But I'll say this, that, that buttering someone up can be a good thing. That sounds controversial. You don't want to hear your pastor say that, but I'm going to say it anyways. It can be a good thing. Now, when we butter someone up, it's almost always self-serving. I was a guest speaker at the 6th and 7th grade camp at uh, Bowling Green Christian Academy a little over a month ago. And I asked all the kids, I said, have you ever said nice things to people in order to get something out of them? And immediately a big choir of voices said, yes, I have. We have all done it. And if I uh, asked you guys that same question, I'd hear a few, yeah, I've done that before. But we've all done it. But when we look at the next set of verses, it becomes clear what kind of favor that Paul is asking of Philemon. He says this in the next set of verses. He says, it is, it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know, he's trying to guilt him in. I'm an old dude. I'm in prison. That I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. So here's what Paul asks. Here's why he butters up Philemon. Here's why he's writing this letter. He asks Philemon to take back Onesimus, who was his runaway slave. Now, as I mentioned before, this letter from Paul to Philemon is probably one of the most controversial books in the entire New Testament and in the entire Bible. Not because of what it does say, but because of what it doesn't say. You see, the backdrop for this book right here is the Roman institution of slavery. 
Slavery in those days was completely unlike the slavery that our country practiced 150 years ago. See, slaves in Roman times were generally prisoners of war or people who evaded the state by not paying their taxes, by refusing to serve in the military, or not participating in the census. So this wasn't slavery based on race. It was slavery rooted in punishment and discipline as opposed to the color of one's skin. Now, what's interesting about Philemon is that while Paul has every opportunity to condemn slavery for the monstrosity that it is in these few verses, he never does. And his silence has been used by both pro-slavery activists and abolitionists throughout history to justify their positions. So this is one of those books that people can twist Paul's words pretty easily because he leaves himself open for that. But I'll say this, Paul thinks that Jesus is going to come back at any moment, and he's trying to get people ready for when that happens. Now, if you're Paul, and you think Jesus is coming back at any moment soon, you wouldn't focus on attacking big institutions. You'd focus on getting people right with Jesus first and foremost. But Paul wasn't completely silent on the issue of slavery. In other epistles, he exhorts slaves to be obedient to their masters as unto the Lord and for masters to treat their slaves well. And he also says this in 1 Timothy, that slave traders, those who make their living off of selling slaves to other people, are practicing what is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul was most likely opposed to any form of slavery in Roman times. But in his mind, there were bigger fish to fry. Now, getting back to our text, somehow through the grace and the sovereignty of God, Onesimus, this runaway slave, ends up in the custody of the Apostle Paul. And Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord, and Onesimus becomes Paul's assistant in the gospel ministry. And when Paul says, he was useless to you, but now he's useful to us, he's toying around with Onesimus' name, which literally means filled with use or useful in Greek. So Paul's saying that Onesimus didn't really help you out at all before as just one of your slaves, one of your servants. But he can, and he will be helpful to you in the gospel because he's a fellow believer, and he's gotten his training with the Apostle Paul. And Paul's kind of selfish, you know. He wants to keep Onesimus in his, in his care so he can continue being a fellow missionary and worker for the gospel. I mean, if you found a great assistant you want to keep them for yourself, right? It just makes sense. Now imagine you're Philemon, and you're a pretty wealthy guy. And imagine that one of your slaves, one of your most valuable employees, runs away. You'd be pretty upset. You'd be pretty angry. So I think Philemon is still just a little bit ruffled from Onesimus running away. And Paul's trying to delicately calm him down a little bit. And that's why he kind of has to butter him up and lay on the charm. And then he has to go in for the ask. But Paul asks Philemon not only to take him back. He has a bigger request in mind. And the next set of verses, Paul says this. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So when Paul's thinking Onesimus' crime probably worked out for Philemon, because now he'll appreciate ha having him back forever. 
And it's amazing how when you read through the scriptures, you see God taking people's mistakes and unfortunate circumstances and forming them into something beautiful that just fits in with his sovereign plan. It's his sovereign plan mixed with his abundant love for us. Think about how Onesimus ends up in the custody of Paul almost randomly. That's all God working and moving in the lives of his saints. And Paul says, look, this is actually great because now you can accept him back, not as your slave, not as your servant, not as your subordinate, but as your brother in Christ. This kind of continues what Paul's trying to do with Philemon. He's trying to calm him down and help him see the bigger picture. And this kind of thinking is so contrary to the culture of the day. It would have been unheard of if Philemon let Onesimus live. Because in Roman law, he had every right to kill him, his runaway slave. It would have been unheard of if Philemon let Onesimus return to his post with just a few lashes on his back. It would have been unheard of if Philemon let him return to his post unpunished. But to invite a runaway slave back into fellowship and treat him like a brother? That's not Roman. That's not human. That's the gospel. He says that Onesimus is now your dear brother in the Lord. Paul says Onesimus has run, run away. He's caused you trouble. But as a good Christian, Philemon, you're called to forgive him and accept him as your brother in Christ. Regardless of what Onesimus has done, forgive him and, has, and have a deeper relationship with him than you ever had before. And Paul goes on to say this in verses 17 through 21. He says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Whatever Onesimus has cost you, Paul says, put it on my tab. Besides, you kind of owe me one. See, Paul knows Philemon. He knows his heart. He knows that he's going to do the right thing and go above and beyond whatever Paul asks. You see, Onesimus is Paul's spiritual son, and most likely Philemon is Paul's spiritual son as well. What did Philemon owe Paul? His life. Because without Paul, Philemon probably wouldn't have come to know Jesus in the first place. That's what Philemon owes Paul, his very life. And Paul says, look, I've accepted you as a brother in Christ. Do the same for Onesimus. And when Paul says, charge anything Onesimus did to my tab, he's exemplifying Jesus Christ himself. He's living out the gospel. And the gospel is this, that all of your sins, past, present, and future, were all charged to Christ's tab when he died on the cross. And because of this event, Christ has paid the penalty for all of our sins. And that's what Paul is telling Philemon he will do. He will incur all the costs and penalties that Onesimus cost Philemon and pay Philemon back in full. It's Paul living out the gospel in a very, very tangible way. And Paul goes on to close his letter with this. He says, And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. Epaphras, who probably helped uh, Philemon co-found the Colossian church. 
And so do you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul says, hey, Philemon, I'm going to come visit you. And the implication is that when I come and visit you, I hope I'm going to see that you did exactly what I told you to do. So in a way, this is Paul demonstrating his rhetorical prowess, his mighty skill with words and his persuasion, his ability to really kind of guilt trip somebody into it. I remember teaching on Philemon a little, little while back in youth group, and one of the kids was just like, that's how it ends? And I'm like, yeah. And then he's like, we're not even going to know like, if Onesimus went back to Philemon and Philemon forgave him? And he looked really, really concerned. So I believe in my heart that Philemon forgave Onesimus and welcomed him back into his home, and that Paul and them are together in the presence of the Lord Jesus right now. So to recap, this is a book about forgiveness. It's a book about restoration and reconciliation. It's about having God's perspective on all of life. So how can we bridge this gap between this powerful story of redemption and our own context today? What is it saying to us? Well, the first thing I think it's saying to us is this, is that being in Christ shatters all human-designed social barriers. Even from the first verse of this book, do we see social barriers being torn down? Remember how Paul, he calls Philemon's wife a dear sister in the Lord. He calls Philemon's son a fellow soldier in Christ. In Christ, there's no room for social barriers because it runs contrary to what God has already done for us. Paul writes this in Galatians 3.28, very famous verse. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave, there's neither nor free. Nor, there, nor is there male, nor is there female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. There's no room for social barriers or dividers in the kingdom because Christ has already broken them down when he died on the cross for our sins. And this, in this new reality that Christ has brought us into, to cling to social barriers and things that divide us runs contrary to the gospel. And Paul says that Philemon, tells the, that tells the Philemon that he really could command him to do what he says. But Paul recognizes the simple truth that all are one in Christ and there is equality before the foot of the cross. That's why he asked Philemon a favor as a brother in Christ. This isn't a letter about an apostle writing to an elder about a runaway slave. This is a letter about a brother asking another brother to accept another brother. And in the church, we need to recognize that we're all on the same plane before the cross of Christ. We're all sinners in need of grace. When God looks down, he doesn't see a lawyer or a businessman or a teacher. He sees a sinner that he's saved by his grace. He doesn't see a rich church elder like Philemon. And he doesn't see a runaway slave, a poor, humble runaway slave like Onesimus. He sees sinners saved by grace. He doesn't see a murderer or an alcoholic or a thief. He sees a sinner who desperately needs his grace. Every single one of us here are on equal footing before the cross. I think the second thing that this book is telling us is that being in Christ requires unconditional forgiveness. Now, as I mentioned before, Philemon could have slit Onesimus' throat for running away. He could have had him thrown in jail for the rest of his life. But Paul tells him to forgive Onesimus and accept him as a new brother changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about Paul's story. 
He was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer of Christians. He hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. And yet God said, I'm going to use you to change the world for my sake. That's forgiveness right there. That's the gospel, plain and simple. I was reading a story this week about a woman named Jean Bishop whose family was murdered decades ago, including her pregnant sister. And for years, Jean was overcome with bitterness and anger until she read a book about forgiveness by a Christian college president. And she met with this college president, and she told him that she couldn't understand why she should have to forgive such a horrible, vile person. But this president basically said, I'm sorry, but this is what Jesus has already done for us. So Jean located her family's murderer, and over time, she led him to Christ, forgave him. She continues to meet with him to this day. That's the gospel right there. And as Christians, we're called to look into the eyes of darkness and evil and hate and say, Jesus has already forgiven you on the cross, so I'm going to do the same. A lot of you know this quote by, uh, by C.S. Lewis. He said this, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And that's what we're about to celebrate right now. The fact that God has forgiven us of all of our sins and that he remembers them no more. The Lord's Supper is all about celebrating and remembering all that Christ has done for us through his death. It's about coming before God with a thankful heart because you have already been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up here. And in a moment, I'm going to invite all of you up here to take communion. Now, let me get the logistics out of the way here, because this is kind of new for a lot of us. When we start to worship, feel free to come up here and grab a hunk of bread and dip it into the cup. I advise that you not drink out of the cup, um, because that's unsanitary. But come up here, grab a hunk of the bread. Um, I can give you kind of a demonstration. You can put your hand on the, on 